every week. It was that good. Acts 9.32. Uh, while the Bible is ultimately all about, hey, Phyllis, good to see you, is ultimately all about the person of God and his program for time and eternity, as an expression of that, the Bible is all about people. It's filled with people. Do you realize that 40 of the 66 books of the Bible are either named for the person who wrote them or for the person or people who first read them? Uh, and in the book of Acts, this is no exception. It's full of people. It's all about people. The 12 apostles, the 120 men and women believers at the very beginning of the church in Acts 2, Peter and John, Barnabas, Stephen, Philip, uh, we certainly see the principle that God uses all kinds of human raw material to accomplish his purposes. Uh, two weeks ago, we saw the conversion of Saul, better known as Paul. And then today, in a, a large passage we're going to summarize, the, the text focuses again on Peter. And really, in just a few more chapters, Peter will become a minor character and the focus will be on Paul. But right now, Peter's the man. And we're going to see Peter interact with a Roman soldier by the name of Cornelius in an event that is monumental to the history of the church and one that, next slide David, emphasizes very clearly the key truth that the gospel of grace, salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, the gospel of grace is revolutionary, controversial, unbelievable, seemingly too good to be true, and yet it's the only gospel that saves, as Paul says in Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So we're going to look at a lengthy portion of Scripture. We're going to look at a key event in church history, the first concerted time the Jewish church takes the gospel to the Gentiles in uh, the household of Cornelius and what that means for us today. But let's, uh, let's first pray that we'll be teachable to God's word. And uh, as always, we want to pray for our uh, peace officers, our firefighters, and our active military. I want to thank uh, David Moore, who spoke... Uh, wisely and well in my place last week, right in the middle of that collage, Sergeant David Moore. And so I appreciate what he does for us. Uh, Doug Strange, would you pray for us in that direction, please? Amen. Last Sunday, uh, I had the privilege of worshiping at 7th Street Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas. Uh, I think most Baptist churches, when I grew up Southern Baptist, everything started at 945. But this church is on the cutting edge uh, they started at 9 with Sunday school. It was my responsibility to teach the senior adult women to uh, 18 widows, uh, all of whom are hard of hearing. And so they, they sit them at a long table. looks like Da Vinci's Last Supper, only you're sitting on both sides. And uh, they give me a little clip on microphone in this little room, and I just walk around uh, counterclockwise uh, for 45 minutes, and we talked about the dangers of Bad, good works. And uh, they actually, uh, none of them went to sleep, so that was a big success. But uh, I have good news for you. We're going to talk about the gospel, the ultimate good news. But I've got good news to, uh, for you from uh, 7th Street Baptist Church. In fact, uh, that picture we just had is actually the front of that church yes, last uh, Sunday. But I have good news for you. I know a lot of you people think that nobody, no pastor probably in the continental United States has cornier jokes than I do. But I have I have news. Uh, Kevin Kicker McWilliams, the pastor at 7th Street, is probably, if it's possible, worse than I am. And I'll give you two examples. Uh, because it was the day after 4th of July, last Sunday, 5th of July. These were his two jokes. During the Revolutionary War, you know, Revolutionary War jokes, you know, are always great. Uh, during the Revolutionary War, what was the favorite tea of all Americans, liberty. He thought that was a joke. And then what's the difference between a duck and George Washington? 
Well, a duck has a bill on its face. George Washington has his face on a bill. So uh, I bring you good news. I mean, my stuff's pretty pretty lame, but it's not that bad, right? All right, let's go to the next slide. Yeah, we're going to look at a lot of verses today, but they break down into two parts. And it's really important to see the connection between the first part and the second part. We tend to analyze them separately. We're going to see Peter and apostolic signs and wonders in 9.32 through 43. And then we're going to see Peter and the apostolic gospel. Apostolic is just the adjectival form of apostle, something associated with the apostles. We're going to see uh, uh, the kind of sign and wonders that only apostles or prophets or Christ himself do to confirm the gospel in its early stages here. And then we're going to see the apostolic gospel. And I, I like to say, you know, the word gospel is a noun, and it deals with some specific truth that Paul very clearly defines in 1 Corinthians 15. But in modern America, we use gospel as an adjective. We've got gospel jamborees and gospel bookstores and gospel this and gospel that. So the apostolic gospel is the same gospel that uh, the church has stood on for 2,000 years. But next slide. If we break that first part down, Peter and the apostolic signs and wonders, we're going to see first Peter supernaturally. You can't reproduce in the, this in the laboratory. I'm sorry, Richard Dawkins. It's a miracle. That's why uh, it was written down in part because it doesn't happen all the time. Peter supernaturally heals Aeneas in Lydda, verses 32 through 35, and then Peter supernaturally heals Dorcas in Joppa. Okay, look at verses 32 through 35. Now, as Peter was traveling through all these regions outside of Jerusalem, now the church is penetrating consistently. He came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. I think I got a map next there, David, maybe. Yeah, Uh, I'm going to use a lot of city names, some of which we're not that familiar with. Uh, I always like to, when I think of Israel, I think of a strip of land here at Canaan. Uh, on the on the far left, on the west, is the Mediterranean Sea. And on the right is the Jordan River Valley. You go from Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. 600 feet below sea level, almost 1,300 feet below sea level, lowest place on the, on the planet. So you've got this strip of land between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. And, of course, we're familiar with Jerusalem and Nazareth. But we're going to start in Lydda and go to Joppa, and then go up to Caesarea. And we're actually going to go to Caesarea in a few minutes by the miracle of photographic photography. Next slide, please. Which I think, which is, no, let's go, go back. I'm sorry. We're operating differently than usual because i got a computer issue. Okay. So let's keep reading. So we're in Lydda, in that town, which is roughly where the major international airport is. Every time we've flown into Israel, we've flown into that city just outside of that ancient city. They built an airport there now. Uh, there was found a man named Aeneas who had been bedridden for eight years, for he was paralyzed. We're not told how it happened. It was some kind of accident or disease, but he's been stuck in bed for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. This is not something you do every day. This is not something apostles do every day, but we're about to penetrate the Gentile barrier with the gospel and we need supernatural confirmation of the apostolic gospel, and this is part of it. Peter says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Sounds like uh, the guy who was laid, let down through the roof, remember, in Jesus' ministry, and he says, pick up your cot and get out of here kind of thing. Uh, get up and make your bed. So you know what that means, Ken? Peter was a neat freak. I'm kind of like that. I do not like leaving my bed unmade. You know, I'm just telling you. It just doesn't look good. I don't like litter either, so whatever that means. And immediately, supernaturally, you can't reproduce this. This wasn't a, a super normal thing. It was a supernatural thing. He got up, and all kinds of people, including just average people like you and me probably, who lived in Lydda and Sharon, the plain, uh, the coastal plain that, that's set in, saw him, saw this guy walking around, realized that this was supernatural, and they turned to the Lord. Boom. First apostolic sign and wonder. Now, look at verse 36. We're going to see Peter supernaturally heals Dorcas. Um, And let's go back to the map there, David. 
Yeah, you know, for the first several chapters in Acts, it's all about the city of Jerusalem, and now we're spreading out. There's persecution in and around Jerusalem. This would be safer. This is where Aeneas was. Now we're going to go to Joppa, which is actually just south of modern Tel Aviv, which is typically when you go to Israel, the place you spend the night when you get there the first day, right? Uh, now there was in Joppa, near just south of modern Tel Aviv, uh, a disciple named Tabitha, uh, that's Aramaic, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. And both those words mean gazelle, which means she was probably light on her feet, something like that. Uh, this woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And, you know, it's, it's inter- I've always been interested in the minor characters of Scripture. You see all these little names that are mentioned maybe at the end of epistles or here, just a little anecdote about this. I mean, pretty big thing. She gets raised from the dead, but we don't know much about her. But you're going to get to meet this person in heaven and find out the rest of the story, the backstory. story. This, this lady was just full of uh, love for the Lord and love for people. And she's a giver. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of joy in being generous. You can live life like this, or you can live life like this. And that's a lot better to live it the right way as a believer. And it happened at, at this time that Peter was in the vicinity that she fell sick and died. Whatever hit her was really hit her hard. And she, she died physically. It's not just biological death, it's clinical death. Or it's, it's, it's biological death, not just clinical death. Uh, and when they had washed her body, preparing her for burial, uh, they laid it in an upper room. But since Lida was near Joppa, uh, just uh, it's a long walk, but you can get there in, a, in less than a day. The disciples, having heard that Peter was there, one of the apostles, and he's doing apostolic signs and wonders, sent two men uh, to him, employing him, do not delay in coming to us. Remember that incident in the life of Jesus where the, uh, the, the centurion, a different centurion, says, sends a message to Jesus, you know, come, come to my house. Uh, uh, and then when Jesus arrives, he says, well, don't come in the house. I, I'm not worthy of that, but just say the word and he'll be fine. And it sound, kind, of, kind of sounds like that. Only he wants them, to, they want him to come immediately. Uh, so Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, long walk, dusty, no 7-Elevens or, uh, uh, convenience stores along the way. Uh, they brought him into the upper room. And all the widows, probably recipients of uh, all these deeds of kindness and charity, which Dorcas or Tabitha uh, was renowned for, all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing all the tunics and garments Dorcas used to make. Why do they have all that stuff? Because he'd given them all that stuff. And this isn't Bible, but culturally, it was really hard for widows and the uh Greco-Roman world to make it. So any little help along the way was greatly appreciated. But Peter sent them all out of the room. He knelt down and prayed and turning to the body, because the soul has departed, but it's about to come back. He said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And, you know, as a, as a minister that does uh, uh, a certain amount of uh, funerals, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, I've always thought, you know, Lord, just one time, just one time, you know, would that, would that be neat to be able to go into the, to the funeral home where the viewing is and go, boom, you know, arise and walk? And, but it doesn't usually happen that way. It's a very unusual miracle. When you look at the Bible, just a few times are people resuscitated to, from the dead. And they're not resurrected. This is resuscitation. Resuscitation means you die again. Resurrection means the consciousness, the soul goes back into the elements of the body, supernaturally transformed, and you're beyond death at that point. You're transcended it. But uh, we've got Elijah. He raises a, a, a dead person. Elisha, his junior partner. The Lord Jesus raises three that I remember. Uh, widow of Nain's son, Jairus' daughter, and Lazarus, Peter here, and Paul uh, raises a guy from the dead in Acts 20. And he did a very bad thing, that guy. That guy fell asleep at church and fell out the window. So don't fall asleep in church because bad things happen when you do that. But uh, so this is very unique. And sometimes, you know, some of the faith healers and stuff will take these very unique, one-of-a-type miracles that are 
uh, recorded not to prescribe what we should be doing, but to describe very unique things God has done. Um, like this is something we all should be able to do if we have enough faith and stuff like that. And I think that's missing the point. So he gave her his hand, raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it it became known all over Joppa. I guess so. We're not going to keep the lid on that. And many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa. So we're in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. Now, uh, as I say, and we'll talk about this some other time, uh, the uniqueness of this miracle ought to be exciting, but not uh, something that's going to expect us to uh, empty out funeral homes. Uh, one commentator says, while God, of course, has the power to raise and resuscitate the dead, this kind of miracle is extremely rare. It seems to be limited to Christ himself and a few selected Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles. We, of course, must remember that death is God's gateway, I would say glide path, to the ultimate joy. And even amidst the apostles in the book of Acts, hundreds of wonderful Christians, including Stephen and the apostle James, were not spared what we might consider untimely deaths. So I think you have to put those wonderful kind of signs and wonders in their biblical context. Um, I think these miracles are especially important because we're about to bust a paradigm and we've got Peter showing and demonstrating his apostolic unique power to heal before he breaks the paradigm that blows everybody's mind that Gentiles through simple faith in the Jewish Messiah are forgiven all their sins. It can't be that easy for the Gentiles. Don't they have to convert to Judaism and then maybe believe in the Jewish Messiah? No, that's what it is. Now let's go to Acts chapter 10. The reality of the New Testament era that actually started back in Acts 2, which is a couple of years ago now as we go through the narrative, the reality that Old Testament Judaism anticipated, prophesied the coming of Messiah Jesus and the Jewish Messiah is in fact the Savior of the whole world, that truth, that dynamic is going to become clear as, in reality as a good Jewish boy by the name of Peter tells Gentiles non-Jewish people. I know we've had a Samaritans respond and we even had the one Gentile, the Ethiopian eunuch, but that was in private. He was going a long way away from Jerusalem on the road to get out of town when that happened. Now we're going to have a Roman soldier. What are Roman soldiers doing in and around uh, Israel? They're part of the occupying force. They've been occupying the, the region for a hundred years and would for several more hundred years. Uh, and We're going to see the saga of Cornelius. We're going to see his vision, that Peter's vision, her dueling banjos, this is dueling visions almost. Um, And then we're going to see Peter bringing the gospel to Caesarea. Let's look at verses 1 through 8. Cornelius is the centurion in Caesarea's vision. He's commanded to send for Peter. He needs backup. He needs more information. At Caesarea... There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. You know, we've got, what, divisions, divisions, battalions, companies, you know, groups like that in the American army. Uh, a centurion was a high-ranking NCO over about a hundred men. And, um, uh, there were six centurions and six groups of 100 men that made up something called a cohort. And then ten cohorts made up a Roman legion. So this is a guy who's uh, got a lot of power, makes the army work, and yet he's very unique. Uh, he was a devout man. He wasn't worshiping uh, all the Greco-Roman gods and living an immoral lifestyle. He feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people, meaning the Jewish people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour... Uh, he would say that was 1,500 hours, but we would say probably 3 p.m. as civilians. Uh, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw, Cornelius saw clearly in a vision, an angel of God come in saying to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror. Every time an angel appears to somebody in the Bible, the, the first reaction is terror. We tend to domesticate angels. Well, you know, Renaissance painters make them little chubby babies with stubby little wings in the background, uh, but angels are God's linebackers. They are tough. And in an evil 
metaphysically flawed world, you need the good guys to be tougher and stronger than the bad guys. Not, you know, hey, I have no active military experience, but I did serve one full year Army ROTC, University of Houston, many years ago. And during that entire year, we had zero terrorist attacks. You're welcome. My little way of helping out. Uh, yeah. So, uh, he said, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror. Don't miss that. This is a tough looking guy. Angel. What is it, Lord? And he said to him, and Lord doesn't necessarily mean a description of deity. Kurios can mean all kinds of different levels of authority. And he said, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial of God. Now, this guy is an Old Testament living Gentile wanting to worship the God of Israel. He's not regenerate. And yet his prayers to get more information have been heard. I remember uh, one famous Baptist evangelist uh, on the national stage once said, God doesn't hear the prayers of a Jew. Huh? Really? Uh, actually, this guy isn't a Jew, but I think he meant God doesn't hear the prayers of unbelievers. God hears everything. He doesn't relationally interact with prayers of unbelievers the way he does with believers, but he hears everything. He knows everything. If a tree falls in the forest and there's nobody around, does it make a noise? Yeah, God hears it. You know, that's what happens on that. Um, so his, your prayers and your good works and your desire to know me means I'm going to give you more information so you can come to saving faith. That's the way God works. Uh, when you respond to the light you're given, he'll give you more light. If you reject the light you're given, he's not uh, under any uh, duress to give you more that you're going to reject. Uh, and now, Cornelius, you're used to sending soldiers all over the place. Send men to Joppa. Now, go back to the map again, David. We're about 30 miles, maybe 31 miles from Joppa to Caesarea. So this vision's happening up here. Peter's here. We know that from the previous chapters. So send for Peter and get him back up there. He's got something you need to know to connect the dots about what you think you know about me. The Jewish Messiah, Jesus, is the Savior of the world. Uh, so send men to Joppa and bring back with them one Simon who's called Peter, as opposed to Simon the Tanner, where he's staying, verse 6. Now, he, Peter, Simon Peter, is lodging with Simon, a different Simon, a Tanner whose house is by the sea uh, there at, at uh, Joppa. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants, says uh, Cornelius did, and watch this, and a devout soldier. Eric, what does that tell you? That tells you that this may be unconstitutional now, but this NCO was living and sharing his faith with the men under him, and at least one of them had had bought into the, the concept there's one God we're morally responsible to, and he's going to make salvation available through a Messiah. So he's at two of his household servants and one of his soldiers from his detachment from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, David, let's go forward. Wouldn't it be nice if we go to Caesarea and see what it looks like? Yeah, when you go to Caesarea, and I hope we get to go sooner rather than later, it's kind of like a national park. Next. Uh, and it's beautiful. So in the Mediterranean, uh, a lot of people don't know that Pontius Pilate's offices were not in Jerusalem, but they're in Caesarea. It's the Roman capital of the region. Next. Yeah, now watch this. Herod the Great loved to build stuff, and he built an awesome human-built port at Caesarea. Uh, there's the theater. This is Herod's uh, palace with a swimming pool. This is the Hippodrome where they went and watched the horse races. Uh, and we're going to see what those ruins look like in a minute. Okay, next. Yeah, there's the theater. There's the Hippodrome. There's what used to be Herod's... Uh, palace and the, there's a swimming pool it's salt water now yep. next please yeah there's another shot from a different angle there's a the hippodrome where they had the horse races chariot races there's the theater okay now Herod's theater built between 22 and 10 bc was the first of its kind in israel throughout the roman and byzantine periods the building underwent several alterations sometime during the third or fourth century the orchestra was converted into a large basin for steerage Staging nautical games. Okay, interesting. Yeah, that's a different angle. I, you know, and I actually took this picture. I've kind of got the Mediterranean to my back and looking back at it. They renovated it and uh, 
15, 20 years ago, and the first guy to do a concert in the ancient uh, uh, theater was Yanni, the guy with the pan flute, you know, the Greek guy. Now, Tom, you remember this? this there's Tom, and there's Kathy, and there's, there's... I'm really good at taking people's backs, I've been told. There's Homer and Pam, and my first wife, and there's Jean, and we're, we're going into the uh, theater, yeah. And there's a shot. Again, I took it. It's just, it's a really a beautiful view, man. Uh, the Mediterranean is so beautiful right there. There's our Asher, Asher, our Israeli guy. There's Debbie. This is really us. There's Jonathan. So he's talking about it. Yeah. Next. This is an artist representation of what it would have looked like at the time. The, the theater would have looked like this. There's Harris, Harris Palace. There's the Hippodrome. Okay. Uh, that's a nice shot I got off the internet, just at either sunrise or sunset. I guess it uh, comes up in the east and sets in the west. Is that still true? The Supreme Court's going to meet about that, by the way. Uh, yeah, another shot. There's Homer. They change stuff, you know. Yeah, that's just another shot of kind of a, uh, just a description of what Herod's palace would have looked like at the time, just from the site. Now, Herod's palace... I think that's Gene, uh, is right there. There's not a lot left, but you can kind of see the layout. And you see how beautiful it is, isn't it? Next, please. Yeah, okay, there's Julie, there's Tom. Just wanting you to know we actually were there. There's Ron. See, we're all talking about this, and Ron's over here. You know, he's always... Next, please. Okay, let's do it again. Now, uh, beautiful mosaic floors. We see that in Sepphoris also, just north of Nazareth. But they really, when you, if you had enough money, they could really fix you up. Next. Uh, same thing. This is would have been Herod's view. Yeah, beautiful floors. Yeah. I prefer carpet myself, but you know. Uh, there's the Hippodrome. Okay. Hippodrome. Keep going. Yeah, there's, there's looking at the Hippodrome. There's not much left. Uh, the seating would have been higher, but it was pretty long. It's longer than the football field for sure. Yeah, from that angle, you can kind of get a little bit of a feel. Okay. And there, there's Gene. People walking around and different tour groups are being talked to about it. Okay. Yeah, there's the Hippodrome. Keep going. Yeah, okay, there's Pam, Jonathan, Homer, Julie. Ron's actually listening this time. Where'd he go, man? Okay. And they would have had chariot races and stuff like Ben-Hur. Would have been really uptown. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Arches. It's like Olympia there, isn't it? Okay. Another one. There's a uh, first century aqueduct moving water. And I think that's pretty... That's, there's, that's what's left of the swimming pool. So take good care of your pool, Danny, because it might start looking like that. Okay. I think that's it. Oh, you know what? This is important. In 1966, archaeologists found, this is a replica, this artifact that specifically mentioned Pontius, mentions Pontius Pilate by name there in Caesarea, outside of his office complex. Okay. There's something else you hear. Okay. So, we're in Caesarea, and Cornelius has had the vision to send for Peter. He's never met him before, but God says, go get him. Now, look at verses 9 through uh, 23. And uh, you know what? Let's go back. And don't do that. It's too many pictures. Just, just leave it there. My bad. Uh, let's look at verse 9 through 23. The next day, as they, the two guys plus the soldier from Caesarea, were making their journey approaching the city of Joppa where Peter was, Peter went up, not unbeknownst to him, they're coming to get him, uh, went up on the housetop about noon to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were pre- preparing the meal for him, he fell into a trance and he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet. He's talking about a tablecloth, okay? A great tablecloth descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In the tablecloth were all kinds of animals, including animals you couldn't eat under the Old Testament law. Like uh, catfish, shrimp, pork sausage, ham sandwich, that kind of thing being let down by four corners. In it were all kinds of animals 
and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him. Whether this is the voice of God or voice of an angel speaking for God, it says, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And it's got a bunch of non-kosher, can't eat this under the Old Testament law food on it. But Peter said, By no means, Lord. I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. I always eat kosher. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean through the death of Christ, do not call common. The Old Testament was partial, preliminary, pointed to Christ. The Old Testament law was like spirituality on training wheels. We don't need the training wheels anymore. Eating or not eating kosher food doesn't make you any more spiritual. Some people opt to do that for various reasons. They have all the authority to do that, spiritual liberty, but it doesn't make you any more spiritual to abstain from pork sausage than if you eat pork sausage. And since I like pork sausage, I'm glad I'm on this side of the curve, you know. And the voice came to him a second time and a third time uh, and then went away. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, next one. Let's talk about the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law was... Uh, You've got the promises given to Abraham, and then on top of that foundation, which directs everything in human history, you've got the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Testament law, which was for a time given to national Israel and had three components. It had the ceremonial aspects of the law, which included primarily the animal sacrifices and the food regulations. You had civil and criminal uh, portion of the Old Testament law, which was the constitution for Old Testament Israel as a nation. Now, I would say, as a New Testament believer, I'm not under any of the Old Testament law. Does that mean I can kill and steal? No. you got the ceremonial law, you got the civil and criminal law, and then included in the Old Testament Mosaic law is direct moral prescriptions that didn't become wrong or on the don't list at Mount Sinai, they had always been wrong. Murder had always been wrong. Lying had always been wrong. Stealing had always been wrong. But they were the, the, the core of the morality uh, that has always been of God was part of the Old Testament law. When we're told we're not under the Old Testament law anymore, where do you see that, by the way? A lot of places, Paul emphasizes a lot, but Romans 10.3, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, right? So does that mean since we're not under the law, we can now murder and steal and lie? No. The moral components of the Old Testament law were before the giving of the law with its 613 do's and don'ts to Moses and continue after. They're gnomic. They're timeless. When we're not under the Old Testament law, we're talking about these things. Ten Commandments, good example. How many of the Ten Commandments are directly repeated in the New Testament? I'm repeated, they're all mentioned, are directly commanded. That would be nine. In Colossians, Paul says, don't let anybody judge you about Sabbath days or any holy days. We're not doing that anymore, kind of thing. So the moral law transcends, it was operative before, it goes back to the person of God. It's included in the Old Testament law, and so in the sense that we're not under the law, none of that directly applies to us, but all the moral prescriptions were before the law and after the law. We're talking about ceremonial law, and Peter hasn't connected the dots yet, but what happened at Acts 2 means everyone who believes is a fully vested member apart from, from the Old Testament legislation, uh, and it's part of something bigger than Old Testament Israel. They're part of the New Testament church. And so uh, Peter's just trying to figure that out. And here you've got the voice of God, either through an angel or directly the voice of God, telling a good Jewish boy to eat a ham sandwich. How do you explain that? Unless this is happening. Christ is the end of the law. What God says is clean. And Jesus talks about that too. He says it's not the stuff you eat that makes you dirty. You expel all that. It's what comes out of your heart that makes you sinful. And we all are at our worst, break our own standards, much less God's, right? And that's Mark 9. And Mark, who's writing that gospel in the New Testament era, says, thus he was saying all things are clean. He's writing that from a New Testament perspective that Peter is discovering in this context, okay? So, um, yeah, let's keep going. Verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to why God would tell him to eat a ham sandwich, as it were, 
Now, if there'd been fried shrimp there, it would have been an easier thing to argue. I'm just saying, but that's just me. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what uh, the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius just happened. This is a class B miracle, super normal, no angels, but they just happened to hit it exactly at the right moment. Uh, sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and they uh, called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was there. Yeah, he's up on the roof trying to decide whether or not to eat a ham sandwich. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. By the way, stop thinking for a minute. You know, go uh, visit the company. Uh, verse 20, rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. Now, the Old Testament law did not specifically say you can't eat with a Gentile. It did have very specific dietary requirements. And it also says things like no Hittite, no Amorite, no Moabite, no Canaanite is allowed in the camp or allowed in the congregation. People read that today and say, oh, man, they're a bunch of racists. No. They're using those terms not in, ethnic, in the sense of ethnicity. They're using those terms in the sense of theology. How do I know that? You've heard of Ruth? She's a major Old Testament character. Uh, Ruth was a Moabite. Old Testament law says no Moabite allowed in the congregation. No Moabite allowed to live in in Israel amongst the Jews. Does Ruth violate that? I'm going to say no. She never stops being a Moabite ethnically. When you're saying Moabites can't come in and be normative members of those worshiping Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they can't do that while they're worshiping the Moabite gods. That's a theological term. When does a Moabite or a Hittite or a Canaanite cease being a Moabite, a Hittite, or Canaanite theologically? When they become a proselyte to Judaism. That's what it was. So it's not excluding people based on ethnicity. It's excluding them based on weird religions that involve child sacrifice and child mutilation, things like that. And you don't want that kind of stuff. You don't want somebody teaching Sunday school who believes in stuff like that at a Jewish synagogue or a Christian church. Does that sound exclusive to you? I don't know. It's, uh, that's just the way it is. So, yeah. So, uh, so this is, this is crazy that he's asking them into the house and they're going to share a meal and spend the night together and then go interact. This is, this is blowing Peter's category. He normally wouldn't do this because even though it wasn't directly commanded, it was just was a good idea. And all the rabbis at the time said, just don't interact with the Gentiles at all, except if you can sell them something, which is basically what it was. And Peter went down to the man and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well-spoken of the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you and to come to his house and to, and to hear what you have to say. Now, I've been a pastor since 1982, and I've never had anybody come up to me and say, hey, my dad, my mom, my kids want you to come uh, to our house because they want to hear what you got to say. I mean, this doesn't happen often. I, we did have uh, our neighbors, the Casperites, bring their kids one night and say, hey, they're under conviction. And since there's not a Baptist pastor available, would you please help lead them to the Lord? So I was, you know, I was happy to do that. But I charge a lot for that one, I'm telling you. So I just say, you'll know, uh, you probably can't afford it. Uh, so he invited them to be his guests. So I think he's still figuring out the ham sandwich thing, but to let him in the house and say, spend the night and then we'll go tomorrow is a mind-blowing thing already for him. So he's making some progress. Now, the next day he arose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa, where Peter was, accompanied him to go to Cornelius' house. We know based on eleven twelve there were six brothers from Joppa. So we got Peter plus six at seven, plus the two servants and the soldier. We got ten people on this uh, magical mystery tour, right? Now, look at verse 24. Peter brings the gospel to Cornelius. And uh, here's the setting, verse 24. And on the following day, so they spent the night in that house, which would have blown your typical legalistic uh, first century Pharisee uh, mind totally. And the following day they entered Caesarea. It's a, it's a long walk, but they must have got up early and did it. Cornelius was expecting them. And you know what? They may not have walked. They may have been on uh, horses or donkeys or whatever. 
was expecting them, and it called together, watch this, his relatives and his close friends. Cornelius has gotten a vision from God. You're going to get a word from God on how to connect the dots, and he wants everybody he cares about to hear it at the same time. So that's pretty cool. Uh, that's like bringing your friends to church. Yeah. Uh, same kind of thing. Uh, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet. This is a centurion. Usually they're saluting him uh, and worshipped him. Uh, that's not great theologically, but he's trying to figure it out. It's the kind of thing you wouldn't write down if you were making this up early in the church. This is what really happened. And by the way, John the Apostle worshipped an angel twice at the end of the book of Revelation. That wasn't ideal either. But Peter lifted him up and said, Stand up. I too am just a man. And as he talked with him, uh, he went in and found many persons gathered. So Peter was expecting to talk to one guy, and he's got a, a room full of people. That's always great for any preacher. Verse 28, 29, Peter summarizes his vision. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful, according to the oral rabbinical interpretation of the law, it is for a Jew to associate the fellowship with or visit anyone of another nation. We don't mix with Gentiles. We want to be separate. But God has shown me I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why did you send me? I mean, what do you want? No, I'm, I'm at your service, you know. And he's going to get the gospel in no matter what they say, but he's ready to go, right? Uh, verse 30, Cornelius, this is battling visions here, uh, shares his vision. Cornelius says, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house about three o'clock. And behold, a man, that's phenomenological language, sunrise, sunset, it's not talking about the movements of the bodies, it's talking about the way it looks to the human eye. The angel that came to Cornelius looked like a young man, and you describe it the way it looked, Mel, and it's called phenomenological language. The Bible's full of that. Those aren't mistakes, it's just understanding what the convention means. Uh, a man, an angel, who looked like a man, stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been answered. Your alms been remembered for God. Stand there or send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So Cornelius says to Peter, I sent for you at once and you've been kind enough to come. This guy's classy and polite. I like that. Now, you got to love this verse. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. That's almost as good as the Ethiopian eunuch looking at Isaiah 53 and saying, Philip, is he talking about himself or somebody else? You know, I don't get these chances. They're just teeing this thing up for these guys. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, I, I take it, but I just don't get it. Uh, verse 43, 34 through 43, Peter proclaims the good news. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand. If I didn't until four days ago, I do now. That God shows no partiality. He loves Hittites and Moabites as much as he loves Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But if you're going to be embracing a religion full of false gods that mutilates and tortures kids, uh, you, you're not with us. We're, we're something different than that. A lot better. Uh, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what's right is open to the light that person's given is acceptable to him. Can you say Rahab? Can you say Ruth? Can you say Naaman? Can you say Uriah? Uh, there are a lot of Gentiles that are prominent in the Old Testament. Peter should have known that from that, but now uh, the tablecloth has convinced him. As for the word uh, that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all. You yourselves know, it's just common knowledge, there was a guy named Jesus in the last couple of years in the area. Uh, what happened throughout all Judea? He was the sensation Miracle worker beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John the Baptist proclaimed how God the Father, Yahweh, anointed Jesus of Nazareth of the Holy Spirit as all three members of the Trinity, right? right? Uh, and he went about doing good and healing those who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him in a unique way. He's the servant of the Lord Isaiah talked about. And we, meaning the apostles, not Peter and the other six guys, they weren't apostles. We are witnesses of all that he, Jesus, did both in the country of the Jews generally and in Jerusalem specifically. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him appear not to all the people, but to us, the apostles and a few others who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate 
and drank with him after his resurrection. We know this was a physical, metaphysical, actual reality after he rose from the dead. Now, some people say, why did he disappear to the apostles, basically? I. Howard Marshall, who is a European uh, evangelical, uh, says this. The resurrection appearances were not made to the population at large. The reason appears to have been that those who saw Jesus were then constituted to act as official witnesses to all the many people who could not see him. And this obligation was not laid on people who were unfit for it, but only of those who had been prepared by lengthy association with Jesus and who shared his mission. So that's that. That's always jumped out at me, and I think it's important. He didn't appear to everybody during the 40-day period, but primarily to the apostles. So these guys went from chickens to eagles, right? In the aftermath of all that resurrection interaction. If Christ is dead, our faith is worthless, Peter or Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, right? Um, and watch this, verse 42. And he commanded us, the apostles, to preach to the people, to testify that he is the Messiah. Jesus is the one anointed, appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. I like to say that Jesus Christ is the issue and the issuer of eternal life. And I'm using the uh, definite article there. We're going to talk about postmodernism one more time, uh, as good of a job as Harmony did. Uh, the book we're using for the young adult class in second hour really in a page and a half summarizes postmodernism. And you can't know anything except you can't know anything. You can't know that. There are absolutely no absolutes except for that one. I mean, the system totally contradicts itself. Plus, nobody can live consistently with it uh, unless you want to live under ISIS rule. But because they're not postmodern, they're premodern, you know. Uh, but anyway, he is the one. He is the judge of the living and the dead. He's the issue and the issue of eternal life. To him, I love this one, verse 43. If you don't take anything else home with you, take this one home with you. To him, all the prophets, the Old Testament, bear witness that everyone, Jew or Gentile, even Moabites, even Roman occupying centurions, that everyone who believes in him, pistuo ace atan, uh, not mental assent, full consent of the will, active, receptive trust, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to the sons of God, those who believe in his name, that everyone, I love this verse, John 3.16, in the middle of Acts, whosoever, you know, everyone, David Bearden, uh, Doug Strange, Maxine Blystone, more importantly, Brad McCoy, everyone, who believes in Him. Faith is only as good as its object. Get over this nonsense that faith is a force you can use to manipulate God. Faith is only the empty hand that receives the merits of Christ and then leans on Him as we walk with Him and abide with Him. But there's nothing meritorious about faith. It's all about the the object of the faith. Uh, the object of the faith gets all the credit because it, he or it does all the work. All the prophets... Bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives the forgiveness of sins. The day I got saved in the back row of Southern Baptist Church, I thought the guy for 45 minutes was saying, don't sin because sinners all go to hell. Don't sin, don't sin, you better not sin. And I'm nine years old and I know I've sinned. And I, man, this guy was, you heard of Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. I think this Baptist evangelist was better than Jonathan Edwards that day. I mean, I, I, my goose was cooked. I thought he was just warning me, don't sin. And he finally got to the cross and God opened my eyes to see Jesus paid all that for me and came back alive. Uh, I was showing the Evangel Cube to Cooper and then later he was in the back of the car and he, he, he spun it to the uh, empty tomb and he went, and he came back alive again. And he came back alive again. I said, yeah, the kid's getting it. You know, he's going to be a theologian like Grandpa. It's great. you got to love it. Yeah, everyone who believes... Now, we're going to see in a couple of weeks in chapter 11, Peter thinks verse 43 is the beginning of a long invitation. But as soon as he says that one thing, you know what everybody in the room does? They go ahead and believe. He's, he just assumes it's going to take a while. And we're going to find out. As soon as he says that, they believe. And you can tell it here, but chapter 11 makes it crystal clear. Look at verse 44 through 48. Um, Peter, Cornelius and the extended family receive and express salvation. While Peter is still saying these things, just beginning his invitation, everyone who believes in Christ, a Savior, 
has forgiven his sins. Uh, he thought this was the introduction to his conclusion, but it's, it's all over. You, you can stop now, Peter. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The whole house got saved that day. Not the building, but the people in the building. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, you know, the six guys that came, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on these Gentiles as soon as they believed. Just like back in Acts 2, it happened to the 120. For they were hearing them, that is the observers from Joppa, we're hearing the new believers speaking in glossa. Glossa is the Greek word. It means tongue in the sense of the muscle or uh, languages. He speaks in a, with a forked tongue. Or he speaks the Spanish tongue. But in Acts 2, we saw people speaking in tongues, speaking in languages they had not naturally learned as a supernatural manifestation and validation of the beginning of the church age. And I'm assuming you can ask Cornelius when you see him, uh, that Cornelius spoke Latin very well, Greek very well, and maybe a little Aramaic, not very much. But uh, these guys, uh, these uh, uh, Cornelius and this other group, uh, his family and friends, are now speaking fluent Aramaic and probably Hebrew and probably citing Isaiah 53 and things like that. And they realize, boom, this that's, looks like what happened to us in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit started the church age. These guys are really born again. There's no doubt about it. And they didn't promise to uh, stop anything. They didn't walk an aisle. They didn't sign a car. They didn't join anything, quit anything, promise anything. This would have to be all of grace for it to work like this. And, of course, that's the way it does work. So that's a good thing. Uh, then Peter declared, uh, hey, these people are obviously with us. They're believers. They're born again. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Spirit just as we have back in Acts 2? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him... Peter, to remain for several days. Now, you might be tempted to think, that's a nice story, I'm happy it happened, but it's no big deal because lots of people hear about Jesus and get saved. This is the first time we've got a concerted, definite, deliberate presentation of the gospel of Jesus ending with everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins to Gentiles, not Jews. Some of the people in this household might have been pretty... uh, sexually loose, immoral, things like that. Uh, and they believed, and God saved them. And so much so that they said, there's no doubt, let's baptize them, they're with us. This is the first time you've got a concerted gospel discussion, penetration with a group of Gentiles, including a Roman soldier. Uh, he probably killed a lot of people with his bare hands. And it's obvious God's in this. Now, this is going to blow people's minds. This is going to send a tsunami of panic through the existing church, especially in the home office in Jerusalem. And in chapter 11, Peter's going to have to debrief everybody and say, here's what happened. And once they believed in Christ and were speaking in Aramaic, who was I to say they're not with us, you know? And it took the church all the way through chapter 15, as we'll see, to kind of figure this out. But Lord willing, we'll start dealing with that next week. But let me end here. Next slide, please. Uh We've looked at a large section of Scripture, but I want to stress that kind of the core of this thing is the revolutionary nature of the the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means forgiveness through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's revolutionary, unbelievable, seemingly too good to be true, which is exactly why we're called to believe it. You can't with uh, without divine initiative and direction and light. Uh, and the gospel, guess what, Henry? Calls sinners. Jewish or Gentile, religious or irreligious, to put childlike faith in Christ. And if you do, you receive forgiveness of sins. Two Sundays ago, we baptized Jillian, little girl, beautiful little girl. And I said, hey, we're baptizing a little kid here, but baptism isn't kid stuff. It's kind of like a wedding ring. It's a symbol. I'm going to play golf or basketball. I'm going to take that off. I'm still married. If... uh Clay, now why would you put my wedding ring on? I'm not sure. But if you put this on when we're playing basketball, you wouldn't be married to me. You've got to say that now. Or Debbie or anybody else. It's just a symbol. Water baptism is a symbol. I believe in the, res- in the uh, crucified, buried, risen Savior. Uh, but yeah, all who believe. All who believe. Next slide. 
So here's my invitation. Golly, why don't you sing just as I am 17 times and ask him to sign a card? Well, uh, A, that's already been done. Number two, there's nothing inherently evil with that, but I don't see that here. Uh, if you watch Chariots of Fire, Eric Little, Athena Track Meets, he'd get a group, share the gospel, basically say everyone who believes receives forgiveness of sins, and then he'd walk away. He actually thought, if God's actually saving people, there will be evidence, right? Because you don't just get a get out of hell free card, you get a whole new nature. But you don't have to get them jumping through hoops so you can write down numbers. So who cares about that? I guess some people like, like to write the numbers down. But when it comes to golf, I don't like numbers either because my numbers are too big, but that's just me. Uh, some malign this, some distort it, some scoff at it, but we're all called to believe it. Uh, don't have time to read all these verses, but I'll read one. Look at uh, Romans 4, 5. All those are good on uh, the dynamics of salvation by grace through faith. By definition, it can't be of grace if faith is commitment to obey, promising to quit stuff or do anything. Faith is non-meritorious. It's active, receptive trust. And there's no better place, I don't think, in the whole Scripture to demonstrate that's the way the New Testament sees it than uh, Romans 4. If I can find Romans 4 under pressure here. Not easy. One of my favorite verses was I totally went brain dead on about a month ago. Remember that? I couldn't even bring it up. So old age, right? Um, what then shall we say that Abraham in the Old Testament, Genesis 15, 6, found? If Abraham was justified before God by works, he'd have something to brag about. But not before God. What does the Scripture say? Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed, and his faith was reckoned as righteousness. That's always been the way people are, are justified. In the Old Testament, they believed in the promised Savior. In the New Testament, we believe in the provided Savior. Right, Redina? We've got a more specific object of faith. Uh, now, the one who works, if you had to work your way into heaven, uh, you know, his wage, his salary is not considered to be a favor. They, they owe you your paycheck if you work 40 hours. But salvation isn't a paycheck. It's a free gift. Verse 5, this is the one I want. But to the one who does not work, to the sinner, the unsaved person who doesn't work, who doesn't have to walk an aisle or sign a car to do anything meritorious, one who does not work, but in contrast to working, believes, pistil, active, receptive trust in him who justifies the ungodly. Who's the one who justifies the ungodly? That'd be Jesus Christ. Not the ungodly person who stops, starts, quits, promises, walks, signs, cards. He, he justifies ungodly people who believe. That person's faith is credited as righteousness. So I think you see a great example of that. And again, the context of this is so critically important as far as the overall flow of the church. Uh, my invitation to you, and we're not going to sing uh, the invitation 17 times, is the Bible says all of us have sinned and come short of the glory standards of God. The wages of sin is separation from God in a place of punishment forever. That's just what it is. That ain't the good news. That's the black background bad news you need to understand before the good news makes sense. But the good news is God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He who knew no sin was made to be a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 and then I love what I just read. Uh, but to the one who does not work but believes on Christ who justifies the ungodly, that ungodly person's faith reckoned as righteousness. No one's so good they don't need this. No one's so bad they can't have it. It starts right at the base of the cross. You say, Lord Jesus, I'm a, I am a sinner. I break my own standards when I'm bad, much less yours. And I know I've broken yours. And I can't fix it. That's the problem. You can convince people sometimes they've broken their standards, but they want to get some duct tape, and fix it themselves. Nothing in my hands I bring except to the cross, I claim. And faith doesn't bring stuff. It's not about what you can do for God. It's about what God's done for you. So from the depth of your heart, you say, Lord, I recognize my sin, my inability, but I believe that Christ Jesus died for me and rose again. I trust in him alone for my salvation. He's all I got. He's all I want. And when you really believe in Christ like that, he doesn't just give you a get-out-of-hell free card. Because if he did, you'd probably lose it. Some people lose their paperwork at customs trying to get out of China, right, Homer? Uh, he got out, but it wasn't easy. Uh, yeah, he didn't give you a card because you'll lose it. He gives you a whole new 
capacity to respond to him, and inevitably you will. But uh, that doesn't necessarily happen at the end of a church service. That happens in a college classroom, on business trips, when you're at a school for Halliburton, in a little town called Duncan, Oklahoma. Uh, some people understand this. Okay, Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this mind-blowing event that's so beautifully summarized in this passage. I pray that we never get over your amazing grace, the awesome provision of the Son of God for us, his literal bodily supernatural resurrection, validating the power of his substitutionary atoning sacrifice, and we rest in him alone. And we focus on him as believers, so it's never about us. It's never about how much we're doing or how great we are. It's all about the greatness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for anyone here this morning who's not uh, before, uh, by your grace, uh, trusted in Christ alone for salvation. I pray you'd open their eyes and their hearts to receive him. For most of us who have trusted Christ, I pray we'd be encouraged to live consistently with the implications of this wonderful message we so dearly believe and uh, help us to be more consistent in sharing it when you give us opportunity. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.